Colossians, the book of Colossians, and we are continuing in our exposition of the book of Colossians, and we're now in Colossians chapter 3, and verses, uh, we'll be looking at verses 12 to 15 this morning, Colossians 3, verses 12 to 15. And I'm going to start reading at the beginning of chapter 3 for context. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. See it at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, an obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words, for these instructions concerning how we are to live. Those of us who have been born again, raised with Christ, how we are to live and walk in a Christ-like manner in a way which honors him, which glorifies him, to put away the old self and to put on the new self recreated in his image. Lord, we still stumble and fall. We still struggle with sin. So as we look at these words, as, at, at this passage, help us to understand it, help us to remember it, help us to apply it to our lives. And Lord, as I speak your truth, as I um, speak your word, I pray that my words would be your words and that your words would go forth in power and precision to impact the hearts and minds of your people for your glory. Christ's name I pray. Amen. So, we uh, have, in a sense, uh, uh, switched gears as we've come to this uh, second half of the book of Colossians. And in, in the first two chapters, we see that um, the Apostle Paul has been uh, refuting error um, that was going on in the um, church at Colossae and around that region, the errors concerning uh, Jesus Christ and the gospel and what it means to um, be holy, to 
walk in true spirituality, and, and uh, he uh, puts forth the, the gospel, the true gospel. Uh, he um, expounds upon the true nature of Jesus Christ as, as very God of very God, as um, he um, talks about his work in uh, salvation, in that he had um, a true body, that he was truly flesh and blood, but very God of very God, as the, um, as the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed says, and that he did purchase salvation for those of us who have repented and believed upon him. He has made us new. We are to walk in newness of life, and, and Paul gives these instructions concerning that, concerning what it means to be holy. He refutes these errors of, uh, of religious practice, of asceticism, of legalism. And we went through all these isms um, as we were looking at the end of chapter 2. And, and then he gets to chapter 3, and he shifts. It's almost like um, he goes from doctrine to practice, as he does in many of his, his books in you can see that um, clearly in Romans and um, in Ephesians. And it's the same is true here. And, and many of the other apostles and the other New Testament writers, it was similar. They, they, they expound upon doctrine and then they, they shift to application of that doctrine. And here in chapter 3, he says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. He puts forth this principle that we are to continually be seeking those things above, and particularly we are to seek Christ, to be like him. And and there is a principle throughout the word of God that uh, you will, in a sense, um, become like what you worship. You will become like what you fix your eyes upon. Um, Whatever you dwell upon, you will, in a sense, slowly be conformed to that. Because that's your goal, that's your objective. And we are to dwell upon Jesus Christ. And so, as we are going through um, chapter 3 in the last few messages, we went through uh, verses 1 to 4, and we were shown not to look down, not to dwell on things on the earth, but to seek those things above, to set our minds on those things above, because that's where Christ is. He is our life. He has given us new life. He has uh, died in our place. He has recreated us, and, and we will be conformed into his image. We will be glorified in him, and so we are to seek those things that are above, not so much in a mystical, over-spiritualized sense, but in a sense that we um, learn more about Jesus Christ and who he was and, and what he commanded and how he walked and, and what he um, commands us to be like. And we walk in those uh, instructions, those commands, those precepts. And we also seen in verses 5 to 8 that uh, there is a program for change for sanctification, to be made holy, to um, be um, made, remade into Christ's image, to um, change. God's program for change, that we are to first and foremost to uh, mortify the sin that is within our, in our lives, the, the remaining sin, that we are to put it to death, those things which are earthly in you. All the 
passions and evil desires, the idolatry, the covetousness, the sexual immorality, the impurity. And we are to put away all those uh, evil thoughts and words, especially those things which uh, criticize, condemn, and destroy other people, slander, obscene talk. And then we saw that uh, the last message I, I preached a couple weeks ago that um, we are to have integrity. We are to be people of the truth. We are not to lie. And not just in the bold, explicit, black and white lies, but in the subtle deceptions and manipulations that we are prone to uh, engage in. That we are to be people of integrity because God is one. We are to be one as he is one. We are to be one body. There is to be unity and integrity all throughout um, our lives and throughout the church. That integrity be gets integrity. And then Paul goes on in verse 12. He, he shifts from the put off in the previous verses to now the put on. And it's this, this sense of stripping off the old um, uniform, the old clothing, the old attire of our um, previous life and putting on the new clothing, the new uniform of a Christian. One commentator says this concerning this passage. He says this, Paul returns to the clothing metaphor and commands the Colossians to put on various character traits. Interestingly, Paul says that they have put on the new self in verse 10, but also must put on these qualities here in verse 12. And then he says this list of qualities reflects closely the character of Christ himself. Paul's command is qualified by descriptions of what the Colossians are in Christ. He focuses on the status of believers as united to Christ, God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Paul's not calling for a moral self-help drive. Rather, he wants the life of Christ to be seen more distinctly in the Colossians' lives. He desires them to live consistently with the spiritual realities that are already true. This is just, this is not simply uh, um, morality for the sake of morality. Um, Because some of these commands, some of these attributes, some of these qualities you can see in unbelievers. And you can see in adherence to false religions. And you can see um, some of these qualities promoted in the world just to be compassionate, to be kind, to be patient. Those are good qualities. But we must put those things on in a Christ-like sense. Honoring Christ to glorify Him, to walk as He walked. And in this passage here in verses 12 to 15, Paul gives four successive commands to the church at Colossae concerning these Christ-like characters which they are to emulate. Rather, four qualities they are to be continually putting on. And first is that they are to put on Christ-like attitudes. They are to put on Christ-like attitudes, as he says in verses 12 and 13. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. 
As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And in order to understand this, first, and the primary command that kind of dominates this, this passage, these few verses, in order to understand this this command which Paul gives us, we must ask a few questions. First, why? Why are we to put on Christ-like attitudes? And and for the most part, we kind of know the answer. These are good qualities. These, just as I said, that many people in society all all around the world would would, um, say these are good qualities, would uh, promote these good qualities. But why are we to put these on, and how are we to put them on? Why are we to put on Christ-like attitudes and, and uh, live as he lived? And in his commentary on this passage, Curtis Vaughn, he writes that Paul's appeal for all his commands, there, there's a reason for all his commands, and he says this, that his appeal is based on this threefold fact. Christians are chosen of God. They are set apart by and for God and loved by God. The three terms chosen, holy, and dearly loved signify essentially the same great fact, but under different aspects. And this is the key to the whole passage right here. This this phrase, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Because you can, in a sense, uh, you know, try to pull yourself up from your own bootstraps and and try moral behavioral reform as is promoted in in many uh, false religions in the world and secular organizations and secular uh, psychiatry, self-help books. Be compassionate. Be kind. And there's stickers, all stickers throughout. Be kind. You probably remember those stickers with the B, you know, be kind. And there's nothing religious or spiritual about that. It's just, you know, being kind will make life easier for you. Being compassionate will be um, applauded. You know, being patient is, is good. It, it makes the world work better. But we as Christians, need to understand why we are to put on these qualities and and, and what's so important about these qualities. How does this connect with the Christian life? And it starts right here. That we are God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. We we must uh, get this, we must um, understand this, Completely before we move on to the what we we always it, almost everything in, in life. Uh, just being in the military and, and writing out uh, an order or a mission statement. You have to understand the why before you go and do the what and the how. Otherwise, you'll go off course. You won't meet your objective. You won't meet mission. The why is so important. And Paul says, he, he, he lays out this why in, in just this short phrase. Because you are chosen. You're chosen. You are elect. And, and right here, this points back to the doctrine of election, which um, there's 
many people in, in Christianity and Christian culture who um, they don't understand this doctrine or they fight against it or those, those people who really love it and they, they ram it down other people's throats. And the bottom line is uh, the Bible, it proclaims the doctrine of election all throughout it. All throughout the scriptures, even, even the, 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 the nation of Israel. God, God says in, in, in Deuteronomy, in the beginning of Deuteronomy 7, it wasn't because you were mighty in number or greater than all the nations that I chose you, but I chose you because essentially I chose you and decided to set my love upon you. And that's the truth all throughout scripture. There, there's nothing that we bring to the table in salvation except our sin. That's the only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin that um, made it necessary. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him, and I will raise him up. He said to his disciples, you, I, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And this may be uh, offensive to some, but it should be comforting. If we understand the, the depth of our sin and our depravity and, and um, what we truly deserve, it should be comforting that, that God chose us. And, and our testimonies should, should, in a sense, evidence that, should show that, that, and most people's testimonies do, that you know, God did a work. He drew me. Ephesians chapter 1. Proclaims this, one of the main passages. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 6 proclaims that this is what happened. A lot, a lot of times, you know, when, especially when we're new in the faith and, and especially if we've had a drastic conversion, we, we might not be able to um, explain everything that happened or to understand everything. It would be like the, like the, the, the blind man in the Gospels, when Jesus um, healed the blind man and, and he's being questioned by all the Pharisees and he says, hey, listen, all, all I know is this. I once was blind, but now I see. And sometimes our testimonies are like that, but, and we have to, as we grow and we learn, we go to the Word of God and we, we see what actually happened. It was God that set us apart, that drew us, that chose us, that called us, that converted us, that... Um, took out that heart of stone and gave us a heart of flesh that loves him and seeks him, that, that um, removed the veil from our eyes, as, as uh, 2 Corinthians 4 says, that we could see the world and see ourselves as it really is and understand who he is. And, and, and even, even um, you know, the faith to believe is a gift. By grace you have been saved through faith and is the gift of God, not of yourselves, lest any man should boast. There, there's no boasting before God. All of us deserve hell. Every single one of us. 
Because if, if even externally, if we, we seem pretty good internally in our thoughts and our emotions and our desires, they're contrary to God and what he, he commands us, of us. So this is a main reason why we should change because we've been changed, because we've been called, because we've been chosen, we've been set apart. You are holy. Holy. This is what the, the term holy means. All, all throughout the Scriptures, and, and especially through the Old Testament, uh, the people of God are called to be holy. God defines Himself as holy, holy, holy. And, and there is a sense that holiness, we, we understand that it, it is uh, almost a, a, a purity without uh, blemish, without spot, without sin, without uh, failure. But it also means that you're set apart. That God, God is holy, 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 meaning that there's no one like God. He, he's completely separate. He is other. He is distinct. And as he calls his people, called out from the world, he sets us apart. He separates us. He, he separated Israel from the nations. He called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees. He, he calls every one of his people out, apart. He, even the prophets, he had set them apart for special service. The disciples, Jesus calls them out. The, the, the church itself, the, in Greek, ekklesia, meaning the called out ones. We are called out from the world to be distinct, to be holy, to be different, to be God's chosen special people. Why? Because He loves us. And, and, and oftentimes we, we look at love differently than what the Bible um, defines as love. God doesn't love us because there's something lovely in us. He loves us just simply because He loves us. Because God Himself is love. And He desires not because of anything within us, but because of everything in Him to display His love in and through us. It's nothing that nothing because of what we have done or could do or will do, but simply because He desired to set His love upon us. And if we fully understand this truth and embrace it, that for those of us who are born again, as even Jesus was trying to explain to Nicodemus, what does it mean to be born again? And Nicodemus wasn't being facetious when he said, can a man enter his mother's womb a second time? He was literally like, that can't happen. Jesus like, yeah, you're, I think you're starting to get it. God has to do a work. He has to regenerate your dead heart. He has to cause you to be born again spiritually. We understand, we grasp this truth. Then from that arises the motivation and the desire to change. Because we've been changed and we want to continue to change. We've been saved from our sin and, and, and we don't want to continue to live in our sin. We've been called to righteousness and we, we want to be righteous. And so Paul starts 
this command put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. And sometimes we, we can just skip over that. But that's the key point of the whole passage. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. If you fall into this category, then you can then move on forward and put on these qualities, which are in Christ. Compassionate hearts. To actually care. This is what he means. To actually care about other people. And sometimes this is hard. It's harder for others than some of you. Some of you are just naturally compassionate people. Some of us, we still struggle. But when we understand the compassion of God in choosing us and calling us and converting us and setting his love upon us, then, then we can learn to be compassionate towards others. We can be caring towards others. It's, it's, it's what it means to actually have a, a heart and not just go about your day thinking about yourself. And then sometimes, you know, we, we see so much evil in our world and through the news and the media that we can um, become desensitized, so to speak, and we can become apathetic. And even we hear about stories, you know, we, we know that we should help people out, and we hear about those stories about, well, you know, someone, um, a homeless person asking for, for money, and they're just going to turn around and use that money for drugs or alcohol. Or we hear about, you know, people um, putting on a ruse that they're stranded on the side of the road, and then they turn out and they rob somebody. And so we hear about these, these stories about how people, um, in a sense, um, put on a disguise or, or claim to be hurting and needing help, and, and then they're really um, trying to either scam you or rob you, and, and we hear about these stories, and we can tend to close our hearts off to people who are truly hurting. But we need to be compassionate people because God was compassionate to us. And, and all these qualities, they flow in. They, they flow in and out from one another. They, 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 they're successive. It starts with God's compassion towards us, and then we would have compassion, and then the kindness is, is almost um, exercising that compassion externally, being kind to people. Even the Bible says in Romans chapter 2 that it's the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. Some of us, we have testimonies. I, I, I remember even my own testimony, coming into, ch- into church and just... Um, people being kind to me as an unbeliever. And just that, that kindness can break a hard heart. When, when you reach out to a neighbor or a coworker and you offer something that, that may be simple or maybe something profound, like, here, you can use my car. Here's the keys. Now, there's wisdom in that. <laughs> but, you know, some of you have done things like that. And it has made a huge impact. Some of you have testimonies where somebody else did something like that to you. And it literally can melt a cold heart, an icy heart. We are we're to be people like that. We are to put on humility as well, to be humble people. And humility starts with 
it starts here in this doctrine of election and salvation, of understanding that, that we brought nothing to the table. No one shall boast in the sight of the Lord. We, we have nothing to offer him. We, we, we come to him with open hands. We understand that unless God moved, unless he initiated um, something, unless he reached out toward us, we would not reach out toward him. There's, there's nothing to boast of. Even as Paul told the Corinthian church, and, and, and there's, there's pride, there's arrogance in that church, and, and he's trying to um, confront it and, and address it. And he says, what do you have that you have not received? And if re- you received it, why, why do you boast? Talking about their spiritual gifts. You know, e- e- even if you're a profound or an, uh, you know, a, a profound, eloquent preacher, that's a gift from God. You know, if you have a lot of money and you're able to give large portions of money, God gave you the money in the first place to give. There's, you know, if you're mighty, if you're strong, if you're wise, if you're intelligent, if, you have, if you're successful, you, know, you can trace it all back to God. He's the giver of all things. So really, you have nothing to boast in. Nothing to boast in. We, we should all be humble people. And, and the interesting thing about humility is, is once you um, start to think about it or, or, or um, think you're humble, then you're not. <laughs> it's, it, it's, it's a paradox. It's almost a self-forgetfulness that you empty yourself as Christ did. You, you forget yourself. You're, you're others-focused. You need to put on humility. We need to be humble people. We need to be meek people. As most of you know, the, the verse, the meek shall inherit the earth. And, and in our culture, meekness is um, not considered a, a, a noble quality so much. It wasn't in the Greco-Roman world either. Um, you know, we, we live in a, a dog-eat-dog world that, that we need to, you know, especially for those in the workplace and business, um, Young professionals who are starting out on their career in school, they, you know, you need to get after it. You, you, you can't be mousy. You know, you, you can't be a doormat. And that's not what meekness means. Meekness is, it, it's not weakness. It's strength under control. It is, it is a trust in God's sovereign rule over the u- universe that, that we don't have to... Um, uh, we don't have to avenge ourselves. We don't have to assert ourselves. We understand that God is in control. There's this, this illustration of um, the difference between a well-trained war horse that is able to go through battle, doesn't get skittish at, at gunfire or, or cannons or the yelling and screaming. or the, he, he just is, there's strength under control. He's able to just... Stay there and obey the commands. It, it, not like the wild bucking bronco. It has strength under control. You obey the commands of your Lord. You're, you're meek. You understand who your God is and where your strength comes from. And we need to put on patience. Patience. Probably one of the hardest qualities, especially in our world and in our day and age, it seems like it, 
uh, as technology grows and, and information is at our fingertips and, and things get more efficient and better, you know, you go to the grocery store or uh, fast food restaurants, things get quicker and quicker and we get less and less patient because our expectations is it's going to be right now. We're going to go there and they're going to have it ready for me. We're, we're, we're going to pay and they're going to give it to me. Or, you know, I'm going to get in my car, I'm going to go right down the road, and there's going to be no obstacles. And our society is moving and growing towards more and more impatience because there's more convenience. But we need to be a patient people. And all these character qualities, they, they, they link together, they overlap one another, and these are qualities which we see in Christ. These are the the attitudes that we need to put on, proactively working to put on. This is a a proactive part of putting on these Christ-like attitudes because we've been converted and chosen and made new in Christ. And then verse 13, he says this, bearing with one another and if one has a complaint against Another forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And and in verse 12, these qualities that he tells us to put on is more of a a proactive um, putting on and and then proactive in the way we um, interact with one another, our, our, our attitudes, our behaviors. But then now in verse 13, it's almost as if how we are to exercise these attitudes. It's in our reactions to one another. How do we react to one another? How do we react to other people in the world? We're to be forbearing. We're to bear with one another's faults. We are not to get easily irritated and frustrated. Peter says this, he says, Above all, in 1 Peter 4, 8, he says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Are, are, are you easily annoyed at other people? You, you easily get frustrated, easily irritated, easily offended by a comment or a look. Sometimes, you know, you, you can look at yourself. Sometimes we say things and we didn't really mean it that way, or we use the wrong words, and someone takes an offense at that, and we, we didn't mean it. We need to be people that are, are, are not easily offended. And we can, in a sense, take it on the chin, so to speak, or, or as the old saying, like water off a duck's back, it just rolls off. Sometimes people, you know, we interact with one another, and, and we might have a look on our face that, that doesn't, seem uh, joyful or inviting, and, and someone can easily take that the wrong way. Oh, well, they're, they're sneering at me. They're mad at me. They have something against me. That may be true, but we really don't know that. Maybe they're busy. Maybe they're anxious. Maybe they're frustrated. Maybe they got something else on their mind, and they just, in a sense, snubbed you and, and ran past you, didn't say hi. You need to be people that aren't easily offended by that, that are forbearing. We don't, oftentimes, we don't have the whole story. 
you know, and that other person, what they're going through in their lives. And you need to be forbearing, willing to um, endure an offense if need be. But oftentimes we, we can be easily offended just because the way someone either looked at us or didn't look at us at all. They just ignored us. Oftentimes we, we don't have the whole story. In those instances where it's not exactly clear, we need to be forbearing. We need to allow love to cover a multitude of sins. You think about this in the family, um, in marriage. <laughs> I mean, if you brought up every little thing in your marriage, you probably wouldn't be married long. <laughs> you probably wouldn't have a good marriage. There are certain things you need to let go. You just need to let it go. I remember in, in seminary, I had a professor, he's, he said, and he wasn't supposed to be teaching about it, he was supposed to be teaching Greek, but I remember he said, let it go, just let it go, say it with me, let it go. Later on, I can tell my daughter that I said let it go a lot in the sermon. So. <laughs> but it's true, we need to let it go, let it go. It's not, there, there's a lot of things that weren't, aren't worth bringing up. Second, we are to be forgiving of one another. This is one of the most important Christian qualities and behaviors. Forgiveness. If you are unforgiving, that, that, that questions your own forgiveness. Are, are you really forgiven if you're unforgiving? Do you remember what you've been forgiven of? This is the, the soul, the, the um, center of Christianity. That we are a people that have been forgiven of our sins and we are to then forgive others. We are to be willing to forgive. We, we are to be the first to extend the olive branch of forgiveness. And, you know, forgiveness is... It's, Sometimes it's not exactly clear um, in our culture what it means, or, or we have misconceptions of forgiveness. I mean, uh, Jesus told his disciples, Matthew chapter 18, verse 21, and Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times, or 70 times seven times. Um, depending on your translation. He, Jesus, it, it, and Jesus isn't giving a number to it, in a sense. A, 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 a Hebraic term of using numbers as seven. Seven is a, a kind of the number of completion following the days of creation. Um, Jesus said, almost in a sense saying infinity. As many as it takes. If he's truly repenting, then you need to truly forgive him. And you need to be willing to forgive him even if he doesn't repent. And here's the here's issue with forgiveness. Because you can offer forgiveness to somebody and extend forgiveness to them, but there is a sense where they can refuse to receive it. You're still to extend it. And forgiveness is not received unless there's repentance. And some of you may have, you know, had an instance either in the workplace or amongst friends or whatever, 
where um, someone has done something wrong against you, they've sinned against you, and you offer to forgive them, and they're like, oh, I didn't, I didn't do anything wrong. You offer to forgive them, but they don't think they did anything wrong. Now, you have extended forgiveness to them, but they have not received it because they don't think they did anything wrong. They don't see the sin. And this is sometimes the wrong view of forgiveness, that we are to offer forgiveness, we are to extend forgiveness, but that forgiveness is not received unless there's an acknowledgement of guilt, an acknowledgement of sin, a confession of sin, a repentance from sin. It's not just saying, oh, I'm sorry. And when we have, you know, in conflict resolution and we have conflicts with one another, especially in the family, especially in marriage, what we're supposed to do is the guilty party is, is supposed to ask, they're supposed to, a true repentance is saying, hey, I did X, Y, and Z, will you forgive me? You're supposed to name the sin and acknowledge the sin. Then ask for forgiveness. Or, or even if you extend the forgiveness... The, the sin should be clear. If someone doesn't want to name the sin or acknowledge the sin or take responsibility for the sin, then they can't receive the forgiveness as much as you offer it to them. Forgiveness is, in a sense, a transaction. We, we need to offer forgiveness. We need to be a forgiving people. But you won't receive forgiveness unless there's repentance. This is true in salvation. Jesus offers forgiveness, but unless you repent, you won't receive it. And then after that forgiveness, that transaction, there is to be a reconciliation and a restoration of the relationship. You're not to hold a grudge or remember that or um, you know, tuck it away in your storage file to use later as blackmail. It's to be forgotten. Never brought up again. This is what God does to us. He, 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 he removes our sin as far as the east is from the west. He, he does not bring it up again. He forgives it completely. And if we have sinned against one another, if we've repented, if there's forgiveness, then we are to, uh, we are to forget it. We are to reconcile. There's to be a complete restoration of that relationship. However, some people, um, you know, they're genuine. They want to, you know, um, uh, confess several sins. And sometimes um, it's not beneficial to confess every sin to somebody, such as those sins which are on the thought level which are on the attitude levels, those sins which the other party does not know, it's not beneficial to bring it up to them. It's, it's, that, that's a sin against God. As even David writes in Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned. And, and there's, you know, I've heard several um, situations of, you know, e- even a pastor um, have somebody in the congregation, come up to them and, and confess, hey, I, I've been lusting after your wife. Well, he didn't know that. <laughs> it's like, now you just ruined that relationship. You've caused more harm than good. You should just confess that to God. So sin's on the thought level. You confess that to God. 
if it's a clear sin against one another, clearly in the action and word level, the external, then yes, you need to confess that to the person to be reconciled with your brother or your sister. But if it's merely on the thought level, then you confess that to God and receive, seek his forgiveness. But we, we are to emulate God's forgiveness, that he is a forgiving God, that he is willing to forgive us, willing to, uh, willing to receive us, to restore us, to be reconciled, us who were his, his enemies. Everything we did before uh, salvation was, was against him completely. We are to be people who are marked by a forgiving attitude, a forgiving demeanor. And, and church history is full of, of accounts of people who have just been tortured, persecuted, oppressed, abused, and have, like Jesus said, Lord, please forgive them. They, they don't know what they're doing. And, and that's a work of God. And, and, and our forgiveness should be such that people see Christ through us. Forgiveness is something, it, it's, it's a key Christian characteristic. Not just saying, I'm sorry. We, we're to be marked by these qualities. One commentator, he says this, he says, he says, verse 12 contains a, a pentad of Christian virtues, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. They point to those qualities of life which, if present in the community of believers, will eliminate or at least reduce frictions. All of them are manifestations of love, which is mentioned in verse 14 as a crowning virtue. Saying that all these qualities that Paul talks about, if they are present within us, we will truly be set apart. We will truly be different. We will truly uh, show love to the world because we love one another, because we uh, are forgiving of one another, because we are compassionate towards one another, because we are a people that is set apart different than any other people. They will know you by your love. We are to put on Christ-like attitudes. And then second, we are to put on Christ-like actions. He he encapsulates this, or he puts it, in a sense, almost like a capstone on all of these um, attributes. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. But that raises the question, what is love? What is love? And, you know, our, our culture, our society, you know, it has all sorts of different definitions of love. And it's so much so that we, we just assume we know what it is. We know what it means. We, we know what love is. It's interesting, like, you know, you know the whole um, sexual immoral alphabet um, you know, the homosexual movement, they, you know, this common saying, love is love. What does that mean? It's like, that's, that's like, a, that's caveman talk. It's like, rock is rock. 
tree is tree. Love is love. It doesn't mean anything. You've got to define it. And love is defined by God. Because God is love. He defines what it is. And if we understand His definition of love, then we're confronted with the fact that we're actually not that loving. In fact, most of the world is not loving. 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. And and, and this is mainly what love is. 1 Corinthians 13, 6, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth. Love is exactly in line with truth. That is why, you know, a homosexual cannot love another homosexual because love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. They're they're actually not loving one another. When when you, um, in a sense, you see this... um, you know, in families, broken families, and, and someone has a drug addiction or alcohol addiction and, and, and a, a, a kind and compassionate mother or father or grandmother or grandfather is giving this person money because they ask, and, and, well, you know, that's my grandson or that's my granddaughter or that's my son, and, and I love them. Well, if you're giving them money so that they can go and destroy themselves through alcohol or drugs, then you're not being loving. You're not being loving at all. You're enabling them in their sin. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Love rejoices with the truth. Even in Proverbs, if you do not discipline your son, you hate him. You're not showing love. God disciplines us because he loves us. Love um, confronts us with the truth when we're wrong. Confronting other people in sin is an act of love because they're going the wrong way. And, And if they're not in Christ, they're headed towards hell. Oftentimes in evangelism, you know, people get offensive. They get hostile towards the evangelist. But the evangelists, and if they're doing it right, they're showing the greatest act of love towards this person. To show them, hey, you need to turn from your sin or else you will spend an eternity in hell. Love rejoices with the truth. And it bears all things, it believes all things, it hopes all things, it endures all things. It's willing to endure hostilities, and slander, and backbiting, and bitterness for the sake of the other person. Love has the other person's best interest in mind according to God's word, according to what God says. Because God is love. Love is defined by God, and love is commanded by God. Matthew chapter 22, one of the lawyers, you know, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they're they're hammering Jesus, they're trying to trap him, and one of them, a lawyer, comes up to him, Matthew 22, verse 
35, and he asks him a question. He says, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. We are to love as God loved. And even loving your neighbor as yourself, there is you know, the Good Samaritan. That's an, uh, a parable which, which Jesus teaches as an illustration of what loving your neighbor is like. That you, you, You're supposed to have your neighbor's best interest in mind. And just these two commandments. As Jesus said, these are the two greatest commandments. On, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets, meaning the whole Old Testament hangs on these two commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And none of us does that. Not perfectly. There may be some instances in our lives where um, there was a little bit where we were loving. But, but this, this is the standard. This is the standard that none of us meets. This is why we need a Savior. But Jesus met this standard. Jesus loved the Lord, his God, his Father, being equal with God. He loved him with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He loved his neighbor as himself. We are to put on these Christ-like actions of love because this is what God commands us, to be loving. It's a characteristic of God. God is love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That's the greatest act of love in history. To give of oneself for another. This is the type of people that we are to be. We are to put on love. And as we put on love, that binds everything together in perfect harmony. This brings us to our, our, our next question. What does love produce? Love produces unity. And as Paul is saying, it produces unity in the body. One commentator said, supernatural love poured into the hearts of believers is the adhesive of the church. As we love as God has commanded us and has defined it, we, are a, we become a community and an organization and a people that are like no other. We, we are truly holy, set apart. We are different. Those people, they, they truly love one another. They do things for one another, even though they're different, even though they don't agree with one another on everything, even though they come from different backgrounds and and different demographics, and, and they look different. They truly love one another. Love produces unity. Love produces fellowship. Love produces harmony. Harmony. Everything working together, rightly. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Another commentator, he says this, in its practice of love, forgiveness, and graciousness, the Christian community is to be a showcase of the reconciliation and peace Christ has brought between heaven and earth. As we love one another, as we put on these qualities, we are putting on 
Christ-like attitudes. We are putting on Christ-like actions. Love, which produces unity, harmony, peace, joy. Third, we are are to put on Christ-like submission. Christ-like submission. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Colossians 3, verse 15. William Barclay, in his commentary, he writes this. He says, Paul uses a verb from the athletic arena. It is the word that is used of the umpire who settled things in any matter of dispute. If the peace of Jesus Christ is the umpire in anyone's heart, then when feelings clash and we are pulled in two directions at the same time, the decision of Christ will keep us in the way of love. And the church will remain the one body it is meant to be. The way to right action is to appoint Jesus Christ as the one who decides between the conflicting emotions in our hearts. And if we accept his decisions, we cannot go wrong. This is why I said when he, when, when, uh, he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, I, I entitled this, uh, this third point to put on Christ-like submission because this is what Jesus Christ did. He always submitted himself to the Father's will. He did not do his own will. Even though his will was in line with God the Father, he submitted himself to the Father's will always. And if we let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts, we're in a sense um, emulating his submission to the Father as we submit to him. We submit to Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Master, the head of the church. And as we submit to him, we submit to the Father, we submit to God, there will be peace in our hearts, even though there, there, there might not be peace in our lives and in our circumstances we will have peace. And, and, and this peace, it starts with God. The peace of Christ. The peace of Christ. The, the, the peace made by Christ. This divine peace that as we come into this world as sinners, as, as enemies of God, we are hostile towards God. We are against God. We are God's uh, enemies. We, 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 in a sense, hate God coming into this world because we love ourselves so much and we want to do what we want to do. But in salvation, Romans chapter 5, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, he has made peace. He has ended the hostilities. And more than that, he has reconciled us With God the Father, He has restored the relationship which was ruined by sin, by the curse of sin, by our depravity. This is a peace that should rule in our hearts. The peace of Christ, of what He has done, should be ruling us, guiding us, governing our actions, our thoughts, our desires, that that Jesus Christ came to this world to save sinners such as us. And he has made peace with us between God the Father. That that should govern our whole lives. Salvation. The peace made by Christ. This divine peace. But then there's also the peace given by Christ. An additional peace. As as Jesus was saying to his disciples in the upper room uh, on the night in which he would be uh, delivered up. John 14 and verse 27. He says this. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, 
Not as the world gives do I give to you, but let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. What, what he is, in a sense, saying there is that because of what I am about to do, you will not only have peace with God, but I leave my peace with you. I give this peace to you so that you can uh, live amongst this world, that you can walk amongst this world, that you can continue this mission which, which I give you. And, and even in the, in the face of persecution and opposition and, and trials and challenges, you will have peace. You have peace of mind because the, the most important thing in your life is settled. You are saved. You are forgiven. You are redeemed. This is a peace that, that Jesus would leave with them. And he's almost uh, alluding to the Holy Spirit here as he will go on and talk about the Holy Spirit in, in John chapter 14 and 15 as the helper that will come to you. The peace. And there's peace that is made by Christ. There's peace given by Christ. And then there's this peace offered through Christ, this abiding peace. And John 16 and verse 33, he says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Our, our, our peace, the, the, the peace of Christ that should rule in our hearts, it starts with understanding um, our peace with God. And that Christ has given us peace, he's offered us peace as we abide in him. Isaiah 26.3 says, You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Isaiah wrote that in the midst of, of um, mounting pressure from, from uh, uh, their enemies, from other nations, that, that um, Jerusalem, Israel itself, was about to be exiled, was about to be captured, um, and Isaiah writes, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. you. You trust in God's plan, that he has a plan for this. It's a, the, the, the peace with God. But then there's this peace with others that is supposed to you know, rule in our hearts. It starts with the peace with God, but then it extends to the peace with others. The peace of being called into one body. That we are united into one body through the blood of Christ. That we who were once far off are brought near. We who were once different. And, and even, in a sense, some of our um, cultural heritage or our subcultures or ethnicities um, were against one another. Or hostile to one another. Or social classes. Um, the, the, the church is the most diverse body. And yes, uh, there's local churches in areas where everybody almost looks exactly the same, and, and so it's not that diverse. But um, in general, the Church of Jesus Christ is the most diverse organization on the planet because only God can, can bring together so many people that are so different and have such different backgrounds. This is why Paul says in, in verse 11 of Colossians chapter 3, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Not that he has completely erased those distinctions, but that those distinctions don't matter anymore. Because we are one in Christ and there is peace in the body because we are called into one body. And so we should have peace with others. But 
there's also this piece of being a peacemaker. Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be sons of God. There's a sense that we should be promoting peace. We should be extending that olive branch of forgiveness to one another and to others outside of the body so that we are known as people of peace, as peacemakers. We're to have peace with others because the peace of Christ is to rule in our hearts. And and when this peace of Christ rules in our hearts, we will have, as Paul says in Philippians 4, the peace which surpasses all understanding. And I'd like you to turn there real quickly to Philippians chapter 4. And most of us know this passage, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. But there's, in a sense, a context here. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 2, is he, Paul says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syndache to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. There, there's, in a sense, there, there's a disagreement here. There's a conflict. Paul's asking for conflict resolution, that they would agree in the Lord, that they would come together. Something happened. We don't know what happened, but as happens in church, people get frustrated with one another. They get annoyed at one another. They sin against one another. There's conflict. There's splits, there's separation, and Paul's asking for unity. He's asking that they would agree with one another. And then he goes on and he says in verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always again, I will say rejoice. In a sense, whatever circumstance the Lord brings you into, you should be rejoicing. And then in verse 5, let your reasonableness be known to everyone, because the Lord is at hand. That we should be a reasonable people. We should be known as a reasonable people. That we should be forbearing, forgiving, loving, kind, um, able to work with one another, able to defer, not, not holding on to our way with such tightly clenched fists that we got to have everything our way, but we're reasonable so that there's peace. Paul says the Lord is at hand. Agree with one another. And then he goes on to the passage that we're so familiar with, the verses we're so familiar with. Do not be anxious about anything. Maybe hinting at these relationship issues, but anything means anything. And then, in, But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Saying that whether it's a relationship issue, whether it's a, a trial at work or a challenge or a natural disaster or a loss of income or a loss of, of house and home or a health issue or whatever it may be, don't be anxious about it. Rejoice. Let your request be made known to God in the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, meaning that that the world should be like, I don't, know, I don't know why you're at peace. Your whole life is falling apart. You have all these trials, these issues, relationship struggles, and you're just calm and content. So yeah, that's the peace of God which surpasses all understanding because the world doesn't understand it. 
And it starts with the peace of Christ ruling in your heart. It starts with, with peace with God. And then when you have peace with God and you understand that peace with God, that, that peace with God was initiated by God, and that peace rules your heart, and then you have peace with others, and you can be the person and the people that God calls you to be. J.C. Philpott, in his um, writings, he says this, commenting on this passage, he says, Peace, then, as the fruit and effect of justifying righteousness is also a spiritual blessing which God has blessed us with has blessed us with in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The apostle, therefore, in all his epistles, prays for grace and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. Almost all of his epistles, they start with grace and peace. Grace, in a sense, all the, the, uh, everything that comes with salvation and the gospel, grace and then peace. Peace with God, peace with others. And let this peace rule in your hearts. We are to put on a Christ-like submission that we submit to the will of God in everything and, and then we have peace. And it's God's will that we will be sanctified, that we will be saved, that we will be settled, that we will be submissive. So in this passage, we see this command, as, as Paul tells us to put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, we see this, this command is is not just to put on Christ-like attitudes, but then the Christ-like actions of love and then the Christ-like submission to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. And then he caps this whole um, section off with uh, a command to, in a sense, put on a Christ-like demeanor. Put on a Christ-like demeanor. Be thankful. Be thankful. Thankful for it. This is Christ. Several times... Um, we, we can see throughout the Gospels that, that, that Jesus is thanking the Father, even, even in the midst of opposition, even when people are rejecting him. He, he says, I, I thank you, Father, that you have hidden these things from the wise and revealed them to children. In a sense, you know, thank you, Father, they're not listening to me. But some people are because you revealed these, this Gospel to them. He, he thanks the Father for almost everything. We are to be a thankful people. And if we put on all these other qualities, we will be a thankful people. We'll understand that we are chosen, elect, holy, loved by God, set apart. We allow the peace of Christ to rule in our hearts, and, and we will be a peaceful people, and we will be thankful. This, this thankfulness, it results from, it, it, this is a thankfulness which results from our election, from our salvation, from our sanctification. We understand who we were. And Paul writes the Corinthians in the beginning of that letter. The Corinthian church, you know, my favorite part of that letter is, is the beginning when he calls them saints. He addresses them as saints and then he, he goes on and tells them how messed up they are and what they need to fix. But he still calls them saints. Because in 1 Corinthians 1, at the end of the chapter, he says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him... 
You are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We consider our calling, we consider our election, we consider our salvation, we consider our lives, our sin, our testimony, we'll realize we we have nothing to boast in but Jesus Christ and the salvation that he has given us. And we will be a thankful people. We will be a peaceful people. We will be a loving people because God's salvation, his election, his choosing of us, it's humbling. It's humbling. This is a thankfulness, this Christ-like demeanor. It's a thankfulness which results from understanding who we were and who we are in Christ. But it's also a thankfulness which produces all these other qualities, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forbearance, forgiveness, love, and peace. Be thankful. Be thankful you are not who you once were. You're not who you're supposed to be, but you aren't what you were because of Christ. Because he has made peace with us through his blood. And he offers us peace to everyone. We, we are to be people of peace. We are to extend this peace. Be forgiving, to be forbearing, to be loving, to be kind. And as we emulate these characteristics of Christ, we proclaim the gospel of Christ to others that there is forgiveness in Christ. There is peace through Christ. There is hope in Christ. There is love in Christ. And we call others to come and to enjoy and to partake of this peace, to turn from your sins, to repent, to believe upon Jesus Christ, and you will have this divine peace. You will know his love. You will experience true forgiveness. Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and heavy laden. I will give you rest, rest in a a sense of peace, a peace of mind. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. If you're not in Christ or you're unsure of where you stand with Christ, come, come to him. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And that's the call. Yes, he chooses. Yes, he elects. Yes, he draws. Yes, salvation is a work of God, but that does not refute the command to come and to receive and to repent and to believe. And if you have repented and have believed, that is a work of God. So revel in that work. And if you don't know that work, come, come now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for this passage. We thank you for these commands. And Lord, we must confess that we don't live up to these commands. There's many ways in which we fall short. Many of us are impatient or irritable or unforgiving, and some of us may be harboring bitterness in our hearts towards somebody. Lord, please forgive us and help us to apply these truths. Help us to walk in light of these truths. Help us to live these truths and help us to proclaim these truths. For your glory, in Christ's name we pray. Amen.